Hi there. Welcome to Evil Chat number two. My name is Derek Evely and I'll be your host. I didn't properly introduce the podcast in the first Evil Chat with Dr. Scott Samlin because I thought it better to just put that one up there as is, as I was quite happy with our discussion and just wanted to leave it out there. And to all of you who reached out to me with messages and express your gratitude for putting Scott on the podcast and bringing his story to everyone, thank you very much. I sent a few of them to Scott and he really appreciates it. I love the interview with Scott, but I talked way too much. So I know I've got some work to do and how I engage with the presenters. So to those friends with the critical feedback, thanks. I appreciate that. It really does help. So before I get into my talk on coach development and coaching education and provide some of my own thoughts and advice on how to prepare yourself for coach education if you're a young coach or if you're a coach that's uh, that's looking for information or maybe planning on putting out your own coach education stuff um, you know I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the pitfalls and what to avoid and uh, what to look for in good material and some of the places where you can find good material um, I want to talk a little bit about my presentation style because this is the really the intro to this podcast. It's gonna. I would. I, I just want to talk a little bit about how I present, my own background, and things like that. For those of you who know me and don't need to hear any of that, um, just skip ahead to about fifteen minutes in the podcast, and that's where the coach. Uh, coach development stuff will start but for those of you who don't know me you might want to listen to this because it'll give you an idea of where I'm coming from and uh, my background in that and so um, which which I think is uh, is relevant to the discussion okay if you're going to commit to listening to this podcast regularly then you're going to have to accept a few things the first is my style of thinking and speaking <laughs> it's well a bit chaotic. Remember the Tasmanian devil from the old Warner Brothers cartoons? Whenever and wherever he moved, it was a, like a tornado of movement and all you could really recognize was the odd body part or his eyes that flashed out of the twister. And the sound of him moving was that of a vacuum cleaner and hyperdrive. Well, that's sort of what it's like to be inside my head. A whirlwind of thoughts and noise. It's a bit hard to control at times, especially when I get excited or I get really enthusiastic about something. Not only do I tend to verbalize thoughts before I've finished expressing the last one, I express them before I've fully thought about them. It's that last one that's gotten me into a, a lot of trouble over the years. It's from a combination of ADHD and brain damage from past behavior, but I figure you're all smart enough to sort it all out and make sense of it. And my guess will make up for it. The upside of this is that the more that I do it, the more you know I'm into it. Also, I used to have a fairly bad stuttering problem when I was a kid, especially when it came to getting thoughts out in a hurry. It somewhat still lingers to this day. I could, I suppose, edit all of that out, but I prefer to keep it real. Any editing you might pick up on won't be because of that. It'll be because someone had to pinch a loaf or get a coffee. 
It also won't be because of foul or inappropriate language. Those who know me understand that I'm a bit, let's say, free in my expression and not afraid to use my rather creative but disturbed vocabulary, all right? So if you're easily offended by swearing, mild ignorance, or bad jokes, this probably isn't a podcast for you. I suggest finding a podcast on raising perfect, boring children or nurturing your family's collective inner snowflakes or your own. But this podcast, this is going to be about dealing with shit in an honest way for better or for worse. Hence the present transparency, which is not to say there won't be deep discussions on values, ethics, self-awareness or things of that nature. These are important issues in coaching and athlete development. If it can relate to coaching in any way, I'll discuss it. And for those of you looking for deep dives into training theory and technical discussion, not to worry. There'll be plenty of that as well. Plenty. For reasons I discussed earlier, some of these podcasts like this one will, will actually be scripted, as will the intros for the guests. That's because A, I write far better than I speak, and B, I want to do right by the guests when I'm presenting their bios and history. And when presenting my own thoughts on the topic, I want to make sure I'm getting things right. So I want to be prepared. But in loose discussions, I'll just simply babble on. So now that I have all that shit out of the way, let me just take a few minutes to explain what this podcast will be about and then talk a bit about coach development and education. Let's start with the name. How did I come up with the name Evil Chat? Because I've taken some abuse on that already. Well, it comes from my email handle, which is EvilTrack, E-V-E-L-T-R-A-K. And how did I get evil track? Well, remember back, if you're old enough, when you first took on an email address and you were limited in the characters that you could choose, I wanted to put my last name, Evilly, and track, the sport I'm involved in, together. But there was an eight-character limit, so I ditched the Y and the C, evil track. I've never changed it, and most of my circle of colleagues know me, digitally, digitally at least, by that handle. It's the name of my coach, teacher, and parent education website, eviltracksport.com, and it was a logical linking when coming up with a name for my podcast. Well, at least it was to my amazing wife, who was the one who actually came up with it. I, in my uniquely and impressively immature way, first came up with a ton of names, most of which would have, in one way or another, pissed somebody off. From the White Knuckles podcast, can you imagine, to, to everything you wanted to know about training, but were too stupid to ask podcast. Not kidding, those were actual titles on my short list. Thank God for wives. Next, and this is important for me that I go through this, I suppose I should say something about my professional history and experience in sport and what I have to offer in terms of what I bring to the table as the host of a podcast that talks about training along the entire spectrum of athlete development. It's important to me because I'm a big believer that if you're going to put your opinion and knowledge out there, that you have the bona fide experience to back it up. My career path has been a little odd compared to many of my colleagues, and so I simply want to be fully transparent before I start belching out opinions on this, that, or the other thing. 
When I listen to someone speak or write on a topic these days, I want to know three things. First, what have they done? Because first and foremost, results and depth of experience are important. And they don't necessarily have to be world-class results or experience to be of worth, in my mind. In fact, results from lower levels of performance or in unique but limiting environments, physical environments that is, are often more indicative of having something of value to offer the curious. Which brings us to the next thing I want to know, which is, what have they faced? That is, what environments or challenges have they produced in? Because context is everything in evaluating success in my world. How a volunteer coach produced a world champion out of a remote indoor facility in Northern Europe with little financial support is a whole different discussion than that of a coach who was able to coach outdoors in warm weather year round inside of a system with a massive talent pool that is fed to them. I'm not saying one is better than the other, they're just different. The possibility of drugs or no drugs is also a massive one to consider. No judgments there, but you have to evaluate those two scenarios differently. The third thing I want to know is most often asked by coaches as, what do they know? As in knowledge. Well, I suppose that's important, but to me it's really not the right question. A better question, or the question I'd rather know is, what have they discovered or learned? To me, this is a far more interesting question and one that may come from any source, coach, former athlete, researcher, or even an ER doc. So how would I measure myself against my own criteria? Well, in terms of results, here's where I come from. I have four mentors who shaped in their own unique ways how I think and how I work with athletes more than any other single influence in my life. Three of them shaped my life in a personal way so profoundly I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that they saved my life, but that's for another podcast. Two of these mentors shaped my thinking in sport training so much that I think I can say with almost 100% certainty that I wouldn't have had the relative success I've had without their influence. Between these two, they have earned somewhere in the neighborhood of 35 Olympic medals from a dozen or so athletes, another half dozen or so world record holders, and over 60 world championship medals. Me? My totals in each of those categories is exactly zero. So much for living up to my mentor's legacies. But the value of my story as a coach is all about challenges and environments. You'll hear, as these discussions play out, stories of what I faced as a coach in situations ranging from the most seemingly barbaric homemade circumstances to the most elite, astronomically funded, world-class facilities. My personal story is just as eclectic, perhaps more so. As an athlete, I was a decathlete in my younger days, made a few low-key national teams by the skin of my teeth, but really I was a hacker, especially compared to the guys that I trained with. I was a low man on the totem pole. The, the guy, guy I had around that was able to run all those nasty workouts with you when no one else felt like it. As a coach I've worked with, and by that I mean directly coached, plenty of high-performance and elite athletes, many of which have represented their homelands at various international games and events. I have a somewhat unique career profile in that I have represented two different countries on more teams than I care to count as a staff coach. 
A staff coach is a coach selected to a team that represents that country at a major event like an Olympics, World Championships, or other major games event. Being a staff coach on such teams is far from an indication of your ability to produce athletes at the highest levels. It's more of an indication of your usefulness as a manager on athletes on the team, many of which may or may not have their own coaches present. Sometimes you effectively coach, but oftentimes it's more about overseeing their personal coach's plan. I did have my own personal athletes on virtually all of those teams, but mainly it was my utilitarian nature as a coach that got me onto those teams. I could coach to a reasonably high level pretty much any event in athletics. I would be on a team and responsible for the throwing events, a relay, and a pole vaulter. That's unusual and useful. I've been named to two Olympic teams, Canada and Great Britain, but actually only attended the Olympics once, the London 2012 Games. I could be the only coach in history to be named to represent his or her country at an Olympic Games, but later stupid enough to have deliberately resigned from that team. But that's a story for another time. So I just went through all of this with you for a reason, and that's I get accolades all the time about being an elite coach or a master coach or an expert coach, but in reality, I'm not sure any of those terms wholly apply to me in the way that they're intended. I really see myself more as a development coach in terms of my expertise, but I also have this expertise at the very other end of the spectrum, which is in high-end training and methodology. So I kind of sit in a weird place in terms of the coaching education spectrum. This is not me simply trying to be humble and self-deprecating. It's me trying to be factual and honest about where I come from as a coach, coach educator, and well, now a podcaster. Truth is very much in short supply these days, as is objectivity. So I feel it's important for me to start there. So what gives me the authority to speak on all aspects of coaching from the lowest to the highest levels? Well, two things as far as I see it. The first is what I'm most proud of in terms of achievement in my career. As I said earlier, I pale in comparison to my mentors when it comes to coaching athletes who have won medals at the highest, highest levels. However, four athletes I've coached from a young age, around 14 to 18, to their entry into high performance, went on to win Olympic and World Championship medals under another specialist coach and all were national record holders. One sprinter, one middle distance runner, a shot putter, and a hammer thrower. Three of them won World Junior Championship medals under my direction. In each case, I encouraged them to leave and I helped find them the right coach to take them where it was possible to fulfill their potential. And where I come from, this is rarely done. Coaches tend to hang on to talent for as long as they can. The second is my long-held love of training theory, planning, and methodology. I don't know why my mind works like that. I just like it. It's, it's kind of a strange thing. As my former boss and good friend Charles Van Comedy once told me as he was introducing me to a crowd I was giving a lecture to, it's a hobby of mine. Sad, but true. Add to this what might be the most bizarre collaboration in sport education history, That is, my having been mentored by Dr. Anatoly Bonnerchuk, one of the greatest training minds who ever lived. And you can see the eclectic mix of experience that has brought me here. 
The whole story behind Bonnerchuk is a really interesting one, and that'll play out over many of the discussions that I'm going to have on this podcast. Honestly, I have no clue where any of this podcast stuff is going to go. However, I do know that there are a few directions that I want to go in on a regular basis. First, I want to discuss with the best minds that I can find some of the bigger questions and topics around training, coaching, sports science, issues that I have a lot of my own thoughts on, but I don't necessarily have a lot of formal education in, let's say. Second, I also want to have loose, fun discussions with people, uh, both in and out of the sport, and through that hopefully provide some insight into what it's like to be a coach at various levels. There's a lot of things that I haven't done well in coaching or my various other experiences in sport and teaching, and there are a shit ton of mistakes that I've made. But one thing I think I've done well over the years is bring discussions of complicated issues in training and present them in an informal way that a, that a coach at just about any level can understand. Back in 2005, when Kevin Tyler, Brian Cropman, and I first started posting coaching-related materials online as part of the Canadian Athletics Coaching Center website, I came to the job already knowing that the biggest problem around coach development and education centered around a coach's reluctance to ask the questions he or she really wanted to know, oftentimes afraid to speak up in public coaching forums, like a clinic or a conference. It happens way more than you think. The relevant information at the level any given coach finds him or herself coaching at isn't always absorbed. Coaches who advance or acquire new advanced athletes beyond their current scope and knowledge can find themselves out of sync with even the most foundational thoughts around training and often have to absorb or reabsorb information that they should, quote unquote, already know. The more they advance in their actual practice or their athletes advance in performance and success, the more, if they are not keeping up, this gap widens. The more it widens, the more embarrassing it might be to reveal this ever-increasing hole by asking a revealing question, especially in public. The more embarrassing it gets, the less they are likely to do it. And so the cycle becomes vicious. So. Back then, I decided that I would ask the questions for those coaches, and more often than not, for myself. I had a pretty good idea of what those questions are because, A, I'm curious by nature, and although I wouldn't say I have a scientific mind, I am a good problem solver, and I like to study problems and come up with answers. And B, I was one of those coaches myself. There was a time in my career where I had coached two world junior championship medalists, along with numerous national champions, but if you had have asked me at that time what the five motor abilities are, I probably would have come up short. It wasn't that I was uneducated in sports science, I just hadn't bothered to learn, remember, or absorb in any kind of meaningful way some basic stuff that I should have. But in Edmonton, working at the CACC, I decided I was willing to lay down my own insecurities in order to make it work. So I did, and it did. To this day, questions still come along that I feel I should know the answers to, but for whatever reason, I don't or I'm not sure. But the difference now is that experience has given me even more confidence, so there are really no places I won't go when trying to find answers. And to be honest, I've been around the block so many times now that most of the time I don't really give a shit about what people think or don't think about what I know or don't know. 
I really want to know the answers to some serious questions about training, far bigger questions than I asked before. The other difference between my approach this time around and what I did back then is that now I feel like I'll be asking questions for coaches across the entire spectrum of coaching practice, along with other sports, not just athletics, or as we say in the U.S., track and field. In 2005, we were one of the first outfits to actually start doing this kind of thing, if not the first. So in 15 years, you would think, with the plethora of online content that's out there and the ease at which one can put together and distribute that content, that there would be less of a need for yet another podcast on coaching. But I think in reality, the reverse is true. While there is a ton of content that's so readily available, much of it is misleading or confusing or just plain bad. Or it's really good but hard to find or there's just so much of it that no one could possibly get through it, let alone process it. Or you have to be an expert already just to determine what is good and what's bad. So I'm going to try to pull a lot of this together, discuss with guests, present my own thoughts, ideas, and opinions, and put it out there for you to absorb and think about, all the while having some fun while doing it. Okay, so let's talk a bit now about coach development. I thought for this first scripted podcast, rather than have a guest, I would provide some thoughts on coaching education and development. My first podcast with Dr. Scott Samlin is up, and my third podcast is already in the bag, and they're whoppers. Two guests whom I think you will get a lot of provoking thoughts from. The third, Stu McMillan, is epic. Originally meant to be a single podcast, it morphed into a series. There's tons of good discussion there. But for this one, I just want to provide some thoughts on coach education, development, and where to get information and how to process it. The world has changed so much since I started coaching professionally that these two terms, coach education and coach development, have taken on a whole new meaning in terms of access. In one of my upcoming podcasts with Stu, he asked me if I think one can get too deep into a topic or study and whether or not this can hinder your coaching. I gave a rather scattered, lame answer, so in our second talk, I brought it up again because I think it's a question at the heart of issues around coaching education and development. To me, the art of coaching is like making music, and this is something Stu and I discuss at length. One needs to study, practice, deep dive into theory, break down, reduce, experiment, and observe, and then observe more. But when it all comes out as coaching, this breaking down in a part should only really become obvious in an immediate sense in two instances. First, when discussing it with other like minds, or trying to educate. And second, when you're trying to impress someone. There's nothing more annoying than a know-it-all. And people like me who think about various areas of coaching or coaching science walk that fine line all the time. But equally annoying are coaches who blow off sport or coaching science and those who engage in it as educated idiots or those who have never produced or something like that. This especially annoys me in those who work with youth. If you work with young people, you work with the future of your sport, and in my mind, you have a responsibility, a fucking moral responsibility, to make sure that what you are dishing out to these athletes is appropriate. Well, it worked for me, or look at my success, just isn't good enough. And I'm going to talk a lot about why that is. 
Success alone as a measure of coaching only works for one classification of coaches, and that's elite coaching. They are measured almost strictly in terms of results, as it should be, but few of us are in that boat. I discussed this at length in my sport parent and coach development courses on my site. And yes, everything I just said includes volunteers. You don't need to read every book available out there or spend days making elaborate plans, but you should have some idea as to what appropriate loading and program prescription is. And you should have a basic sense of proper mechanics. It doesn't take much to learn these things, and no one is saying you have to learn everything overnight, but you do need to learn them and then develop the eye for them. That takes time. You should know the proper mechanics and the basic key movement patterns in your sport or activity and how much and how intense the workload should be at any given stage. Volleyball coaches should know how to spot a weak jumping and landing pattern and know how to cue an athlete out of it. Good coach development isn't about terms or jargon. It's about concepts. It's about principles. But as you get more and more into a concept or principle, terms become more and more important. So make sure you're using the right ones. This is a bigger problem than you might think. In my sport, terms get thrown around like, as a mentor of mine often says, a redheaded stepchild. The breaking down and reducing of concepts and phenomena is critical to studying and understanding something intimately but you have to be able to go back and put it back together. You have to be able to see the big picture. This is because you are dealing with a system, the human body, where such phenomena never exists or functions independently. This is the crux of effective coaching practice, understanding these two realities. Now, speaking of terms, I should say at this point that I make pretty clear distinctions between three levels or classifications of coaching. And these are present in pretty much all sports. The first is developmental coaching. To me, this is coaching athletes preparing for entry into high-performance training or those at a grassroots level. Ages are somewhat irrelevant across sports because one may be working in an early entry sport where athletes enter high performance at an age where they're just beginning in others. But this level of coaching is all about preparing athletes. The next is high performance. Now, high performance and the next stage, elite, are terms that get thrown around interchangeably and that is a bit troublesome for me. Because to me, high performance means intensive, committed training at a high level, but is also still within the confines of some development protocols. For instance, while coaches at this level may be exploiting specialized abilities, those abilities still need to be introduced progressively and in some kind of order. In elite training, however, the gloves are completely off. All abilities are up for grabs in terms of maximal exploitation. There are few roadmaps and certainly no recipes at this level of training. Athletes at this level, typically, have only a handful of peers that can regularly compete with them, depending upon the sport. Coaches at each of these levels should know certain things. In every sport at the developmental level, coaches should know what the five basic motor abilities are, what their specific subforms are, and which are appropriate to develop at any given stage of development. 
They should understand how to put together basic short and long-term plans, which lay out their approach for each, and how to organize training to accomplish this. And they should know when and which types of these qualities are to be developed and when to allow for such qualities to develop on their own. And they must understand a few other concepts like trainability and specialization. These ideas are not rocket science, but knowing them is critical. And lastly, they must understand the importance of progressions. That is, how to prepare an athlete long-term for intensive specific loading down the road without screwing them up now. High-performance coaches should, at the very minimum, be aware of the precise biomotor sub-abilities that dominate in their sport and when to begin exploiting them. By the way, not all athletes, unfortunately, entering high-performance have been prepared for such work. He or she should understand the concept of force application in a fairly deep sense and be able to see it in real time. They should have a good grasp on specific and specialized loading and most importantly, understand how to do all of this while maintaining health in the athlete. That last point is a whole world that has been developing in coach education for the last 15 or 20 years. Elite coaches only really need to know one thing. And that's how to exploit maximum performance for as long as possible out of an athlete who has dwindling levels of trainability left. In other words, they are mostly, as I often say, looking under rocks in order to find the small key that will unlock the next small measure of performance. This is very precise, very customized coaching. And it is very, very different from developmental coaching. And coaches should really understand that. Now, an inexperienced coach who finds themselves bestowed with an elite athlete, as in the case of a truly gifted prodigy, is not an elite coach. No more than an elite coach bestowed with that same prodigy is an expert in preparing that athlete for elite training. And that's important to understand. But shit happens, and many coaches find themselves in these reverse roles and hesitate, unfortunately, to reach out and ask for advice. Regardless, I can assure you one thing is true. In terms of actual fact-based science, most training and coaching literature is geared toward high-performance coaching, as I've defined it here. Far less is devoted to a deep understanding of developmental coaching, which is understandable given that coaching science tends to look at specialized activity. Even less science, however, is devoted to elite athletes, and I'm talking at the highest levels, gain as I've defined them here, simply because these populations tend to be hard for researchers to access and invasive research techniques can disrupt training, so no one wants to allow it. So both ends of the coaching spectrum need to be careful how they interpret evidence and data as much of it may not apply to them. Now, if you just heard this and are thinking to yourself, oops, then don't worry, I get it. I have lots more thoughts on coach development and coaching education, but I don't want to go on and on here. However, I do want to end this on a few important points that I think are really important to understand. All of these things are going to be talked about and discussed in future podcasts and interviews, and all of them you can find on my site somewhere in the various lectures or courses that I offer. So here are my first thoughts I'd like to share with you on coach development, and I'll do my best not to turn it into a rant. 
As someone who has spent a good chunk of his career studying coaching and good coaching practice as a job in and of itself, I've seen many trends and commonalities in good and bad coaching. But if there's one thing that I see as an immediate threat that needs to be dealt with, something that is getting worse by the year, it's black and white thinking. Black and white thinking is the single biggest cancer in coaching. It has always been around, but these days it's consuming coaches and their way of thinking at light speed. In my day, good information on sports science and coach development was not easy to find because a lot of times it meant you had to order subscriptions, go to libraries and dig through volumes of actual paper, or it even meant traveling in order to meet someone who had more experience than you did and possibly a library that you could cordially steal from. These days, none of that has to happen in order to find information. However, with the gargantuan amount of information that is only a click away, one can download in minutes what took coaches from my generation years to search and find. That's good, right? Well, I'm not so sure. Because along with this growth in access has come growth in two other things. The first is confusion and its accomplice complexity. By this I mean there is so much out there that the mere thought of figuring out what is worth diving into and what isn't or who is authentic and who isn't can be really intimidating. Add to this the fact that we as a sport culture seem to want to reduce, deconstruct and examine the living shit out of everything we see by breaking it down as small as possible and you have a very powerful influence on an open but uneducated mind. The second are pseudo-experts and the ease at which their bullshit can be monetized. Before the idiot net, in order to publish, you had to kind of know your stuff. There was a process. Sure, it wasn't perfect and it was often behind the times, but at least you could trust most of it. These days, anyone with a program to sell and a marketing strategy can have it ready for you to swallow in no time. For a price. Want to make some cash? You want notoriety? It's simple. Follow these steps. Number one, pick an ability. It really doesn't matter which one, but strength and endurance are highly trainable and lend themselves big time to reductionism. So that means unless you are a complete fool, those using your program, especially lesser trained or younger athletes, are going to improve. Whether it's due to your system, No one will ever really be able to sort, so it's easy for you to claim success. Number two, reduce and deconstruct that ability to a single component so far down in complexity that its link to an actual principle is for all intents and purposes meaningless. For fuck's sakes, invent one if you have to, it's okay. It just has to be reduced enough that isolating it as the actual cause of improvement is virtually impossible. Number three, come up with an awesome, highly technical name for it. Be creative. Number four, and this one's optional, but it really helps. Create a gadget or a specialized piece of equipment to measure progress. This is really advanced tomfuckery, so I'd only invest in this step if I had screwed over a minimum of a few thousand in prior schemes. Number five. Convince people that this is the missing key to success. 
No one else in the history of training or sports science has ever figured this out. But you did. Because you are a goddamn genius. And voila, that's all you need to do. Now you are an expert. Give me a fucking break. Now, those with good ideas and good instruments and good experience should get paid for what they produce for coaches. But sorting who's who isn't always easy. Ask yourself, what have they done? What have they faced? And what have they discovered? You get good answers to those three questions and you are 90% of the way there. This was the whole reason for my long-winded spew at the beginning of this podcast regarding my own experience in history. In my opinion, these two things, confusion by complexity and pseudo-expertism for sale, have led to many a lazy thinking coach. This is because it's hard to self-educate. It always has been. But the minefield of bullshit is so much bigger than it used to be. No wonder so many coaches with a life just want to say, fuck it, who's got a package they can sell me? But it's important this war gets won. So here are some resources to help you. Now, it's not all doom and gloom out there. Fortunately, there are many outfits and resources doing much good work in the area of coach development. Here's a list of some of my favorites. At the top of any list of high quality, cutting edge training and coach development resources, especially in the area of coursework and in-person instruction, has to be Altus. The thing that sets Altus apart from any other coach resource out there is that it is owned and operated by a team of world-class track and field coaches. In other words, it's run by a team of proven experts in the core abilities that are essential for development in any sport. Speed, strength, endurance, skill, and flexibility. These coaches also drive and produce all of their own online learning content. Started way back by legendary American thrower John Godina, now owned and operated by Kevin Tyler and Stuart McMillan, this combination athlete training and coach educational center has, in my mind, far surpassed anything else out there in terms of offering a comprehensive education for those interested in building better programs for athletes in any sport, anywhere. All of their educational programs are written, overseen, or influenced by legendary American coach Dan Path. Now, full disclosure, I have known Kevin, Stu, and Dan for a very long time. In fact, Stu's the next guest on this podcast and have worked with them extensively, both with Altus and in other projects and environments. And I helped write some of the content for their flagship course, the Foundation Course, but that only means I am deeply familiar with their work, so I can vouch for its authenticity and value. If you are an up-and-coming ambitious coach or even an expert coach in any given sport and want a full-on comprehensive and challenging education, this is where you go. They also have smaller online opportunities like their new Need for Speed and Endurance courses, as well as specialist courses for track and field coaches such as their Throws courses taught by legendary U.S. Throws coach Don Babbitt. Everything they do is top shelf. Now, if you're still into books, I would recommend a few classics that are on my shelf, just, just off the top of my head. Some old and some new. I've mentioned this one many times before, but Vladimir Zaciorski's Science and Practice of Strength Training is a big one for me. 
I like it for its high quality information in a concise writing style and format. The initial chapter on basic concepts and training theories should be required reading for all coaches. Next, I would say Building the Modern Athlete by Vladimir Surin is fantastic. The information on youth training development throughout the book is really well done. You can find it at Ultimate Athlete Concepts or UAConcepts.com. And then, if you are a fan of Eastern European sport translations like I am, then anything by a man named Jess Jarver is top shelf. Now, who is Jess Jarver? Well, as far as I know, and this was told to me by a great Australian coach about 25 years ago, so I may have a few details wrong. So I apologize to anybody who knew Jess or his family, but I believe he was an Estonian athlete and coach who emigrated to Australia back in the day. His real surname wasn't Jarver, but something like that, which he westernized to Jarver when he moved to Australia. And then his hero was Jesse Owens, so he took on that name as a first name. It may have just been a nickname, I'm not sure. This man had a knack for understanding complex European sports science texts and is probably the greatest sports science translator that ever lived. He was the editor of an athletics journal called Modern Athlete and Coach, which is Australian. But if you can find it, the holy grail of Jarver translations is a seven-volume set called A Collection of European Sports Science Translations. In my day, it was not easy to find. I bought it pre-IdiotNet, and it took me a year and a half to track down. But I still have it. And as far as Bonnerchuk goes, I'm going to do a separate podcast on him and figuring him out, so I'll leave him for that. There are so many others I could recommend, but I've been blabbing for long enough now. I'll offer more and more resources as we go along. So, next up on Evil Chat will be my first talk with Stu McMillan. I think you're going to like that one. So, thanks for listening and keep your coaching real.